You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 241 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. As y'all recall, with last week's show, we started to set the stage for the Battle of Stones River. We talked a bit about the aftermath of the Battle of Perryville and the Confederate retreat back down into Tennessee. We looked at the internal tension within the rebel army as Braxton Bragg's top lieutenants lobbied Confederate President Jefferson Davis to remove him. But Davis helped sow the seeds for disaster in Tennessee when he refused to either replace Bragg or transfer his unhappy subordinates. So there was internal tension within the rebel army, but then we also discussed the external pressure on William Rosecrans, the federal commander, to advance against the Confederates and engage Bragg in battle before the end of the year. As we continue to set the stage for Stones River, one thing we wanted to be sure to cover in this show is the importance of a Confederate who didn't even fight in the battle. In some ways, though, it's impossible to understand the Battle of Stones River without understanding the influence of the rebel cavalry commander, John Hunt Morgan. We mentioned in last week's episode that in August 1862, Morgan had struck the most vulnerable point on the Louisville and Nashville Railroad, the 800-foot-long Big South Tunnel, seven miles north of Gallatin, Tennessee. A locomotive and several boxcars were set ablaze and run into the tunnel, igniting a vein of coal inside, with the result that it was weeks before anyone could even enter the tunnel to start to clear out the debris. With the tunnel out of commission, supplies for the federal force to the south at Nashville had to be hauled by wagon around the break. Supplies were also transported on the Cumberland River, but by November 1862, the water level had fallen too low for the steamboats to continue using the river. And so only a trickle of supplies managed to get to Rosecrans and the Army of the Cumberland at Nashville. And then, in December, Morgan went on another raid and set the Union High Command on edge. The result of these two raids was the occupying of central Kentucky with some 32,000 federal troops from the Department of the Ohio. In addition, two of Rosecrans' divisions, about 8,000 men, were dispatched to Gallatin to protect the town and nearby tunnel, 
so that Morgan's Raiders wouldn't be able to stage a repeat performance there. The Federals thus had about as many troops guarding Gallatin and points up in central Kentucky as Bragg had in his entire army. It could be argued that the rebels also had to guard a rail line, the Nashville and Chattanooga Railroad. There was a small Confederate brigade stationed at Bridgeport, Alabama, but it was ordered up from the rear and fought at Stones River. This left only two regiments, numbering perhaps 700 men, to guard the railroad from Murfreesboro to Chattanooga. So clearly the Confederates had little fear that the Federal cavalry would conduct a raid like their own horsemen. After Stones River, the War Department in Washington finally ordered Major General Horatio Wright, the commander of the Department of the Ohio, to pull in his scattered detachments in Kentucky and simply concentrate on garrisoning Louisville and protecting the LNN, and send the rest of his troops to Rosecrans. This meant that three divisions, some 12,000 men, were able to be sent to Tennessee, eventually giving Rosecrans a fourth corps, which was called the Reserve Corps. If the War Department had done that before the Battle of Stones River, instead of afterwards, there might not have even been a battle. If Bragg had been faced with such overwhelming numbers, he might very well have fallen back to the Tennessee River, which Jefferson Davis had already given him permission to do. At the very least, Rosecrans' two divisions at Gallatin should have been released before the battle, and that area guarded instead by some of Wright's men. This would have given Rosecrans an additional 8,000 troops at the battle, thus swelling the Federals' numbers to about 63,000 men. That raid that John Hunt Morgan conducted in early December came about after Bragg gave him orders to, quote, operate on the enemy's lines of communications in the rear of Nashville, capture and destroy his trains, burn his bridges, depots, trestle work, and etc. Harass him in every conceivable way in your power. To prevent just such a raid, Rosecrans had dispatched those 8,000 troops to the Gallatin area. As Morgan thought about how to get at the LNN, he realized that the federal garrison at Hartsville needed to be dealt with first, since those Yankees controlled the best ford along that section of the Cumberland River. Bragg agreed, and on December 6th, Morgan set off with 1,500 infantry and cavalry to capture the place. The Confederates believed that the federal garrison at Hartsville numbered less than a 1,000 men, but in reality, more than 2,000 Yankees were encamped on the heights south of town overlooking the river. Just four days earlier, Colonel Absalom Moore had taken command of the 39th Brigade, which was made up of the 104th Illinois, 106th Ohio, and 108th Ohio, along with the 2nd Indiana Cavalry and some other horsemen and artillery. Except for the troopers of the 2nd Indiana Cavalry, none of Moore's units had been in battle, but a strong brigade of 4,000 veterans under Colonel John M. Harlan was encamped nine miles to the west. At any rate, perhaps because he had only been with his command for a few days, 
or maybe because he was just complacent, Moore neglected to send out patrols or even post pickets along the river. Morgan's Confederates crossed the Cumberland undetected during the night of December 6th, 7th. His men were moving against the unsuspecting Federals as dawn broke on the morning of Sunday the 7th. Swinging west of Moore's position, Morgan sent some of his cavalry into Hartsville itself to cut off the Yankees' line of retreat. The rest of his force approached from the west, while the rebels' two small mountain howitzers woke the Federal camp with shells thrown over from south of the river. At about 6.30 a.m., the rebel horsemen encountered some pickets guarding the enemy encampments, and the Yankee sentries raised the alarm. Caught by surprise and with little warning, the Federals nonetheless formed a line on a ridge overlooking the river, northwest of their camps. Morgan later recalled, I could distinctly see and hear the officers ordering their men to fall in, preparing for resistance. The Indiana cavalry screened the Union North flank, while the three infantry regiments formed a line facing west with the 104th on the left, the 106th in the center, and the 108th to the right. One of the rebels, Colonel Basil Duke, noted that, quote, It was at once plain that the force there was much stronger than it had been represented to be. Realizing that numbers, as well as time, weren't on his side, and that he needed to strike while the Yankees were still in some confusion, John Hunt Morgan sent two regiments of dismounted horsemen forward in a frontal attack against the enemy line, while other infantry and cavalry hit the Federal right. An officer of the 104th Illinois said, The battle opened about 7 a.m., when Morgan's advance came within musket range, the firing became general and continuous on both sides for some time. Morgan still advanced, but slower. While the 104th Illinois held firm, the Ohioans to its right suffered under Confederate pressure to their front and flank. In fact, both Ohio regiments soon wavered and then broke. Colonel Moore ordered a charge in a desperate attempt to salvage the situation, but quickly changed his mind and instead directed that the Federal units ought to rally at their camps and make a stand there. The situation was beyond his control, though, and as Morgan's rebels closed in on the reeling Yankees, Moore surrendered his entire command after a fight lasting little more than an hour. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. 
the Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. John Hunt Morgan counted his prisoners and realized that he just accomplished something spectacular. He later wrote, The result exceeded my own expectations, but still I felt that my position was a most perilous one. Realizing that the Federals were in the area in greater numbers than expected, the Confederates gathered their prisoners and plunder and sent them across the Cumberland at Hart's Ferry, just below the enemy's former camps. Morgan's hunch that his force was in danger was correct. Colonel Harlan's veteran Federal infantry had been alerted to the Confederate raid about 7.30 and had set out marching fast toward Hartsville. Brushing aside Confederate scouts and detachments meant to delay them, Harlan's infantry arrived on the scene just as the last elements of Morgan's force departed Hart's Ferry. Morgan's force marched south with their prisoners and loot and arrived in Murfreesboro on December 9th. Against a loss of 139 men, Morgan had killed, wounded, or captured more than a 2,000 Federals. The prisoners were paroled and sent back north. The victory at Hartsville buoyed Confederate spirits, and Braxton Bragg confidently predicted that Rosecrans would go into winter quarters at Nashville. A second event brightened the month even further for the Confederates when newly promoted Brigadier General John Hunt Morgan wed Maddie Reddy in Murfreesboro on December 14th. General Polk officiated the ceremony, while Morgan's groomsmen included Generals Bragg, Breckinridge, Hardee, and Cheatham. The new bride was forced to say goodbye to her husband, though, just a week later, when Morgan took his horsemen off to raid the Elland Inn up in Kentucky. During this time, the composition of Bragg's army underwent a change. Ulysses S. Grant's operations against Vicksburg out in Mississippi were causing concern, and so Bragg received orders to detach a division, Carter Stevenson's, and one of John McCown's brigades, over 8,700 men in all, and send them west to reinforce John Pemberton's command in Mississippi. The first of these troops departed on December 18th. The Chattanooga Daily Rebel newspaper promptly printed the news that a substantial number of Confederate troops had been transferred from Bragg to Pemberton. Few of the Daily Rebels' readers perused that edition of the paper with more interest than William Rosecrans when a copy found its way into Union lines at Nashville just a few days later. Now remember, the persistent pressure from Washington had made it clear that Lincoln and Halleck wanted an aggressive forward movement from Rosecrans, sooner rather than later, and this dramatic weakening of Bragg's army presented Rosecrans with a golden opportunity to give the powers that be in Washington exactly what they had been clamoring for. Rosecrans met with his generals on Christmas Day, explained his plan to advance against the Confederates, and said that the movement would begin the next day. 
Rosecrans closed the meeting by excitedly exhorting his lieutenants to press them hard, make them fight or run, fight them, fight them, fight, I say. Rosecrans, though, needn't have worried. The Confederates were about to give him all the fight he could handle at Murfreesboro. The Army of the Cumberland left its Nashville camps at dawn on December 26, 1862. Rosecrans Cavalry and the Federal's Intelligence Network gave the Union commander a good idea of Confederate dispositions. Bragg had spread his 37,000 troops in a wide arc with Polk's Corps plus Breckinridge's division around Murfreesboro. The balance of Hardee's Corps was 20 miles to the west of Murfreesboro, while McCown's division encamped 12 miles east of the town. Each of those three elements stood a day's march from help, which meant Bragg's army was subject to defeat in detail. But Bragg's cavalry gave him ample warning of the Federals' approach. The rebel horsemen under Joseph Wheeler and John Wharton not only reported that the Yankees were on the move, but they harassed and slowed down Rosecrans' columns. The Army of the Cumberland marched out of Nashville with Thomas Crittenden leading the left wing, George Thomas directing the center wing, and Alexander McCook commanding the right wing. However, not all of the troops in Thomas's center wing left Nashville with the Army. One division and part of another were still guarding the roads and railroad north of the state capital, while a third division stayed behind to garrison the city. Those detachments meant that Rosecrans took only about 46,000 men south to confront the Confederates. Ten miles out from Nashville, the Federals ran into the Confederate cavalry under Wheeler and Wharton. The rebel horsemen aggressively skirmished with the advancing Yankees. That afternoon, it rained, turning the roads into muddy messes. In fact, except for New Year's Eve, the weather brought rain or sleet each day during the campaign. News of the Federal advance from Nashville reached Bragg that evening. Believing that Rosecrans' force numbered 60,000 men, Bragg decided to concentrate his army for battle at Murfreesboro. As we said last week, Murfreesboro was about 30 miles southeast of Nashville and about 100 miles northwest of Chattanooga. Situated along a meandering, shallow waterway, Stones River, the town's importance lay in the fact that the macadamized Nashville Pike, the most direct route to Chattanooga, passed through it. The pike largely paralleled the route of the Nashville and Chattanooga Railroad, which would be a vital supply artery for any potential Union thrust toward Chattanooga. Rain, fog, and muddy roads conspired to slow down the Federals' advance as much as the Confederate cavalry. Aware that every mile he advanced lengthened his supply line to Nashville, Rosecrans looked for any indication of Bragg's intentions. When reports from McCook and Crittenden made it clear that the Confederates to the east and west were withdrawing toward Murfreesboro, Rosecrans realized that Bragg probably intended to make a stand there and offer battle. And so, after pausing on December 28th to consolidate, Rosecrans set the Army of the Cumberland in motion for Murfreesboro. 
Meanwhile, by the evening of December 27th, all of Braxton Bragg's army was concentrated at Murfreesboro, and he decided where to place his troops to meet the Federals. Bragg issued orders after nightfall for Polk to form the left wing two and a half miles north of town on the west side of Stones River. Hardee would form the right wing east of the river. The Army of Tennessee marched out on the morning of December 28 to form its line of battle. The position Bragg had selected was controversial from the beginning. Although Bragg had little choice in how he positioned the army because of the arrangement of the Nashville Pike and the river, Hardee nevertheless questioned the wisdom of dividing the army by straddling a significant stream. Even though Stones River was shallow and easily forded, that could quickly change if rains caused it to rise. If that happened, the river would cut off one wing of the rebel army from the other. Also, the terrain around Murfreesboro was gently rolling and broken here and there by stands of cedar, but there were a few points of ground just in front of the line that were a bit higher than the Confederate positions. By far the most troubling of these spots was Wayne's Hill, located to Hardee's front and just east of Stones River. If the Federals crossed the stream and occupied the hill in force, their artillery could cover an advance that would cause serious problems for the Confederate right wing. However, the faults in the Confederate deployment would only cause problems if Bragg remained on the defensive. The Confederate commander, though, had no intention of allowing Rosecrans to hit him first. As long as Bragg could get the jump on the Yankees once they arrived and deployed opposite his line, then he needn't worry too much about the defects of his position. On December 29th, the first Federals, from Crittenden's left wing, approached Murfreesboro. An erroneous report that the rebels were retreating led Rosecrans to order Crittenden to send a force forward to seize Murfreesboro, and Colonel Charles Harker's brigade crossed Stones River at dusk to secure Wayne's Hill as a jumping-off point to advance into town. Harker's men drove off the few Confederates atop the hill, but it quickly became apparent that a much, much larger force of rebels was nearby, and they weren't retreating. And so Crittenden withdrew Harker's brigade back across the river before it could be overwhelmed and destroyed by Hardee's two divisions of Confederates. The next morning, McCook and Thomas arrived with their wings of the Federal Army, and brisk skirmishing and artillery duels occurred along the front. A colonel in George Thomas's center wing described December 30th as a day of, quote, our army feeling its way into position. The Federals' probing advance halted late that afternoon, and that same officer, surely echoing the thoughts of soldiers on both sides, noted that, Quote, Tomorrow, doubtless, the grand battle will be fought. As darkness covered the landscape on the evening of December 30, 1862, the Union and Confederate armies faced each other in roughly parallel north-south lines about three miles west of Murfreesboro. Bragg's 36,000 men were positioned with Hardee's divisions, led by Breckinridge and Claiborne, 
on the right around Wayne's Hill. Across the river, Polk arranged his two divisions, led by Withers and Cheatham, and also sent Wheeler's cavalry raiding behind the lines to sever the Yankee Army's connection to Nashville. Rosecrans had detached two infantry brigades, totaling 3,000 men, to guard the Army's wagon trains, so that left him with 43,000 men deployed opposite the Confederates, along a four-mile line from McFadden's Ford to the north to the Franklin Pike to the south. McCook was on the Federal right with the divisions of Johnson, Davis, and Sheridan. Thomas's troops were posted in the center of the Federal position, with Negley's division in the front line and Rousseau in reserve. Then on the Federal left, Crittenden straddled the Nashville Pike and the railroad with Palmer's, Woods, and Van Cleve's divisions. And with battle imminent, that's where we're going to leave things for this show. Next week, we'll look at the opposing commander's plans for the upcoming fight, and we'll see how Braxton Bragg, on the last day of 1862, came so, so very close to securing that most elusive of Civil War prizes, a decisive battlefield victory. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Battle of Stones River, the Forgotten Conflict Between the Confederate Army of Tennessee and the Union Army of the Cumberland by Larry J. Daniel. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations in one handy spot if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. And then as we start to wrap up this show, we have a special request to make. And it's that if you listen to the podcast on iTunes, please take a moment to give the show a five-star rating or even take a few minutes to write a five-star review, because if you do that, that helps other people discover the podcast on iTunes. Also, for those of you who have been bugging slash urging slash asking us lately to put the show up on Spotify, well... It is now available on Spotify, so that's yet another place you can find your favorite Civil War podcast. Woohoo! Yep, tell your friends. Anyway, speaking of friends, we have a couple of new members of the Strawfoot Brigade to say thank you to, Pierre and Ian. And thanks to each and every one of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you'll join us again next time when we continue with the story of the Battle of Stones River. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.